And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the drummer for the Go-Go's, Soon to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the one and only Gina Shock. Gina, good to have you here. Hey, Bob. Thank you, my friend. Good to be on your show. You have this new book, Made in Hollywood. It's a picture book and a storybook. What motivated you to do that at this time? Well, um, it's something that I've been wanting to do for decades. And I, the thought of trying to get all of those photographs and ephemera that I have collected over the years was like, overwhelming. So I was looking for a person to help me do it. I finally found the right person to help me. This guy, Steve in LA, he came up, I pulled out all of my photographs, had them all laying in in my living room floor. He walked in and he said, Gina, this is a treasure trove. This is incredible. We've got to go write up. We're going to write up, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? Make a coffee table book? Yeah, well, we're going to do make a coffee table, photo coffee table book. Um, anyway, so we, we wrote, wrote up a what do you call it? Why can't I think of that word? A proposal. Bob? Proposal. Jesus Christ. My senior moment lasted for 10 minutes. Okay. Yes. A proposal for a photo book. So we wrote one up. We sent it to a couple book publishers and we right away, we got back, you know, right away that uh, Black Dog um, Hachette was interested and talked to them. They wanted to do the photo book, but then they started talking to me about, hey, would you feel like writing a little? And I was, that was, of course, overwhelming to me once again. Uh, I'm not a writer. I don't write books, but 
when we started putting all these photographs together, it, um, it became very easy to write about what was happening at that time. It, it was very fluid, very, very easy because when I look at these photographs, I remember everything that was going on. And, you know, what I didn't remember, like maybe perhaps dates and where I may have been, I keep a daily planner that I've had. I've had daily planners since 1979. So I referred back to them for dates and places and it was invaluable. I mean, <laughs> I had everything written down. So I could refer to that. And I just, and then I have all this ephemera. I have buttons and posters, you know, you name it. I've got it. I just, all this stuff means something to me. I'm, I'm a very sentimental person. I like, I keep cards and letters and things from people that I love. And, you know, this is a part of my history and a part of my life. And I, I wanted to, to keep it, you know? Um, and so I have it all in my possession. Finally found the right person to help me put it together, and boom, it happened. Okay. Can you make any money with a coffee table book, or is it just a labor of love for you and the fans? Bob, it is a labor of love. I don't, I'm going to wind up spending more money than I make on this whole, <laughs> this whole endeavor. Um, but you know what? This, I know it's a cliche, but it really has been a labor of love. Uh, going through all of these photos, it's just, made me so grateful, so happy that that this has been my life and I've captured it and the girls in the band with photographs. And now I can share these photographs with our fans, the general public. You get to see what I was seeing, a, a, a band member, someone in the band, you know. Um, and then when I started writing about this, I, I feel like anybody that picks this book up and starts to look at the photos and reads a little bit is going to want to read the whole thing because it's honest and it's true. It's, it's the, ask anybody. I'm a pretty upfront person. No bullshit with me. So, and I write that way. And these are my words and these are my photos. And, um, I'm really proud of, of finally well, I, getting I agree together. with you. I mean, at first I'm looking through the pictures, but you get intrigued in the story. It's anything but a burden. You cover the major points. You could even want to know more. Now, let's talk about the ephemera in the photos. Bill Wyman of the Stones famously kept one of everything. The irony being all these years later, he's now auctioning some of that off. Was that your procedure? Did you tend to keep one of everything? Um, it wasn't as though I was grabbing one of everything. I was just grabbing whatever was in reach, within my reach. Um, I didn't necessarily cover all everything that came out but I do have buttons. I just, and I, if I could grab one thing, I'd grab as many as I can of whatever. I just, these are all memories. I like looking at this stuff. It's, it's, it's my life, you know? And okay. I, the, the, the bill, by the way, I had the Bill Wyman book, which, and it's really beautiful. Okay. If you could only keep two pieces of memorabilia, they'd be what? Uh, they'd be the poster that I have uh, of when we played with the Rolling Stones in Rockford, Illinois on October the 1st, 1981, I believe. And it's a huge, big poster that I had framed that I have it in my office. That is worth a million bucks to me. You can put that in the casket with me. <laughs> you know, I love that. Um, and you know what? Uh, I guess the other thing would have to be my book because it's, a, it's taken me 40 years to get this together. 
So it's all right there, you know? It's funny because uh, at one point a couple years ago, I threw out all my laminates. It just became, I didn't want to be one of those guys. But I've only kept a couple. One is all access to the Rolling Stones. You got it. That is really cool. You got it. Yeah, of course it is. And you know what? I keep all my laminates too, Bob. I got a million of them, you know? And I don't know if I can let go of all this stuff. I, I mean, I don't, I, there's a, I mean, I'm not a hoarder. My house is not like a crazy space, you know, where you have to figure out how to walk, uh, in, in my home. It, I have everything in its place. I'm a Virgo. I'm very organized. And, um, I don't know. These things are just important to me. And I, and I still have all the laminates. I keep them from every tour and from any other, you know, band that I've ever gone to see when they give you a VIP pass. I have all that stuff. Okay. You talked about going to L.A. Where is all this stuff? Is it in your house now? Is it in storage? It's in my house. Where is your house? I don't need the address, but the generally speaking. No, I, I live in San Francisco, but I did live in L.A. for 27 years. And uh, I moved to San Francisco in uh, 2005 um, and bought a nice old Victorian up here and I'm having a nice life. And I go to L.A. to work. Um, I do as much work as I can up here, but L.A. is sort of... Uh, the home base for the Go-Go's. And when anything's going on, that's where we all meet each other. We all meet up there. Uh, like, for instance, we're going to be meeting there uh, uh, the beginning of December to start rehearsing for the, for the seven shows that we have at the end of the year. So that's home base for the band. So how did you decide to move to San Francisco? And after all those years in L.A., give me a direct comparison to those two. Well, the thing is, is I... I felt like I'd lived there long enough that I was starting to become like a recluse. It was weird. I just, I got tired of the whole scene in the town. Um, and I wanted a place where I could walk, where I could step out my front door. You know, it was, it was either going to be San Francisco or New York. And San Francisco won out because the weather, I love the weather here in San Francisco. It's my favorite weather in the country. I love it. It's kind of cold, like it feels like fall all the time. And that fall rolls in every night. Man, I love the weather here. So um, this was an easy thing to do, moving from L.A. up to San Francisco. And it's so close, you know. I mean, I can hop down to San Francisco. If, you know, it's an hour flight or drive down, which I prefer to do. I like driving. Okay, so now that you're in San Francisco, are you a recluse? or do you, Forgetting COVID, leave that era out. And you've been in San Francisco for a while. Are you the type of person who goes out or you still end up staying home anyway? I do go out, but I am kind of more of a homebody, to be honest with you. Um, I love getting my place the way that I want it, and I'm comfortable. It's it's my safe haven. I don't know if that's because I spent so many years in the public, you know, and I just, I value my time. I'm, I'm honestly kind of private, um, and I appreciate the time that I can have to myself uh, in a place that feels safe. So what do you do in your house? What do I do? Oh, I, I, I write, uh, write a book like, you know, <laughs> Made in Hollywood. That's what I worked on the last year and a half. Um, I'm constantly doing something on, you know, I'm constantly on the phone and doing a ton of emails every day. I get up, I walk my dog. I do do that around the neighborhood. I, I have a, a lovely, the neighborhood I live in is fantastic. And um, it's sort of a neighborhood with all sort of a lot of kids and dogs. And um, I'm up on a hill. Uh I and if I'm if I'm not in the house, I'm out walking around. When I'm in the house, I'm I'm I stay busy. I don't know. I cook. You know what do you do when you're in your home? You cook. You clean it up. 
you, you, you do your emails every day. You know, your friends stop by and make dinner or, you know. Okay. Do you have a significant other? Um, well, yeah, I'd say that I have a person in my life that he is, uh, he's become very important in my life. And, uh, his name is Wendell and he, so, you know, I took care of my parents when they were sick and, uh, I brought them here to take care of them. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Give me a minute. Wendell took care of my father for the last three years of his life. And he's a very important person in my life because I watched what a real man can do. You know, he was a wonderful guy. He is a wonderful guy. And I'm sorry, <clears throat> but we became very close. And I can't imagine him not ever being in my life. You know, uh, we have a very deep connection. He's definitely my soulmate. Sorry. <laughs> you know, you talk about your parents. I know it's a tough subject, but your father's past. You you said when your parents were ill, was your mother ill? Is she still with us or is she gone? Yeah, too? mom. My mom died about three years ago and they were like my rock. Uh, you know, I I had a very tight connection with my parents. I mean, I, I feel like I owe everything to them because they gave me, they instilled in me uh, to, to be in the mind that, that, that I could achieve anything that anything was possible if I put my mind to it and I was was willing to put the work into it that it required. And so I feel like a lot of just everything that I am and I've become, um, I wanted to, uh, that, that this was my way of paying them back by trying to do something that they would be proud of. And, you know, and I, I feel like I, I succeeded in that. And it, it, it brought me great joy to have them involved and bring them into my life when I became a rock star, you know, um, it was wonderful to have them around and, you know, sitting on the side of the stage at Madison Square Garden or at the, at the Hollywood Bowl. All these things were, were very important to me. And I know that they were super proud, you know, and I felt like I had to take care of them when they started getting sick. It was, you know, I had to step up. And so I moved them from Baltimore, which is where I grew up uh, for the last six years of their lives. And I, I, uh, 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 took care of them. Did they live with you in the Victorian, or did they have a separate place? Yeah, because I it's it's I it's two it's two stories, and uh, so I had the downstairs uh, fixed up for them, made it, had to make it safe. You know, I had the, the bathroom redone and the floors, get rid of the carpets, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so I had it I had it fixed up for, for them, and um, and it was great to be with them the last years of their life and see them every single day. Um, and I also, you know, had caregivers and where that's where Wendell came into the picture because he was, I don't know what I would have done without this man. And how did you meet Wendell to have him involved with your parents? Through another caregiver, you know, it, it, I mean, look, I don't want to get into this big deal about caregivers, but it is the toughest thing. If anybody has to take care of their parents or anything, you know, or a loved one, it is very difficult to find a good caregiver. You go through tons of them. Anybody will tell you that. Um, and because I, you know. It's my parents. They got to. They got to have the best, you know. And 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 I was just watching all the time. And if I saw something I didn't like, I get rid of them. That's it. They're out, you know. Um, and Wendell through another caregiver said, "Oh, I got somebody who can help, you know, because I do. It's a twenty-four hour shift, so so you know, somebody for twelve hours and then somebody for another twelve hours." And um, Wendell came in that way, and he was like a star, man. He was just. He and my dad had this connection. My mom had passed, but uh, he had a connection with my father. They were best friends. 
And uh, it was very important to me. Now, let's go back. You say in San Francisco, your friends might come over. You know, when somebody goes towards the other end of the spectrum in age, very hard to make new friends. So who are these friends who you're seeing in San Francisco? Did you know them previously or you met them since you've been living there? I've had a couple friends up here. Not not many, but that I've, I have made some friends. I, you know, like I said, I'm a little private, so I'm not like out there trying to meet friends, trying to meet people all the time. Um, you know, you meet someone else through a friend and... And I have a, a small group of friends up here that are that are really great um, because honestly, Bob, all the majority of my friends are all in L.A. I lived there 27 years. OK, so, you know, that's sort of <clears throat> home base, really, besides where I grew up, my Baltimore. But, um, yeah, the, 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 I, I've taken my time uh, meeting people up here and I feel like I have some very quality friends here. Not quantity, quality, Bob, you know. Yeah, let's go back to Wendell, your closeness. One thing which was surprising in the book is you go into your crushes and relationships, which a lot of people tend not to. So what was it like being a rock star, having crushes, having fans? What was it like being a woman? We don't hear that too much. We hear the guy's perspective. Yeah, well, it was just like being a human being that is dropped into being a rock star. And you're and you're young. You're in your early 20s. And you are having the time of your life. And you're making good money. And you're playing in front of thousands of people every night. I mean, it's a dream come true. So, you know, you have to figure out what you want to partake in. And, you know... Thank God I'm still here to tell the tale. But of course, I did a lot of stupid things that I would never do <laughs> in retrospect. But that's just par for the course, I think. You know, uh, it's it's you're like on a wild ride and you're loving it. And why not? It does. It doesn't happen to everyone. You know, it's OK. But, special. you know, let's be a little specific. You, you you talk about famous musicians you have crushes on, the people you have relationships on, you know, the men they famously interact with women in different cities before the cell phone camera, and you're certainly a star before that, where they have relationships with fans. It might be sexual only. What's it like from a woman's perspective? It's the same. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. You might have casual sex with a fan in St. Louis, and that, and then next night you're in Kansas City. I have done that. I would admit to have, have done that. Not my proudest moment. Okay, let's go back to taking care of your parents. You know, <laughs> the dollars can add up. How are you doing financially? If you never earned another dollar, could you make it to the end? Uh, I think I could, yeah. So the money or assets you have, are you the person who manages that or do you have somebody for How involved are you in that? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm now starting to get involved in everything. As I said, I was, you know, taking care of my parents, which just consumed me. And I'm starting to feel like now it's my time to get myself back and, you know, do what I'm doing right now um, as they would want it. Um, you know, I don't know. It, I, I feel like this is just my time to sort of regain uh, things that I might have moments of time where that I couldn't uh, be uh, that I couldn't fully be in. And as far as the money thing goes, I 
have people that I've been with for years and years and they've handled my money and my parents and my brother, you know, I feel pretty comfortable with that setup. Yeah. I mean, money, I, you know, Bob, I don't even like talking about it because money's not important to me. I mean, it, it is, but it's like, I've never done anything for money. I've done it because I love to do it. I wrote this book because I love doing this because I love taking those photographs. It wasn't, I don't, it's not what motivates me. I agree, but, you know, we're reaching an age, you know, if you're a performer, if you're physically able, you can work forever. But there, I've unfortunately known some of my parents' friends in their 80s and 90s, they ran out of money, you know, yeah. and you can't get a job when you're in your 80s or 90s. So I know a no lot kidding. of people, who, I know a lot of people who are unprepared. That's why I asked that question. Not that you want to Well, have, Christ, you know, Bob, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I think right now I'm okay. Um, I, you know, it is a great thing that, that, that the Go-Go's are still able to play as much as we all want to. Uh, I myself like to play a lot. The rest of the girls don't feel that way or some of the girls don't. But, um, I mean, this being in the Go-Go's has allowed me a lifestyle that I only dreamed of. And, you know, it's, I feel like I, looking at all this stuff, when I look at this book, I feel like I've been on this incredible journey that has uh, where I've met people that like I grew up I grew up loving David Bowie idolizing him or idolizing the Stones and and Charlie Watts I get to meet these people you know hang out with them uh it's a big deal for me because I've always always been about music I love everything music you know every dime I got when I was a kid I spent on buying instruments or or buying tickets to concerts or buying um albums you know and i loved i'd always spend extra money to get the british imports because i really loved british music um you know this has been like this magical journey and i i look at this and i can't believe that it's me like because i'm the biggest fan i really am okay let's just uh go for one second you talked about playing in a perfect world how often would you want to play me i you. could be on tour i could be on tour 10 months of the year easily and if you're not on the road, do you play the drums? No. That's that's not good. How long does it take you to get back in the groove? So what I'm going to do, what I always do, however long we have set up for the band to rehearse to go on tour, I usually go two weeks before that and just play on my own. I, um, I uh, you know, I have uh, our shows are taped. So I'll just, I'll, I'll put that, put my headphones on and play along with the show um, so that I get like at least a good hour and 15 minutes of straight playing. Um, and that's what I'll start doing before we do this, this December show uh, shows. Um, and then of course, before, before we do um, the rock and roll hall of fame, I'll just probably take a couple days where I'll just sit down and go over the three songs just to get loose and limber and remember how it feels, get that muscle memory going, you know, Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. 
style. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Talk, going back to the other point about meeting your heroes. I've occasionally gone somewhere with my girlfriend. She says, why are you talking to that guy? He says, he was the drummer. He was the bass player in this band. You don't understand. And when I get it in my inbox, same way. But one thing I've known is some of these people are good when you meet them. Some of them are not so good. Okay, some of them household names, very sensitive people. You hang with them. They are not fun. So what hey, is Hey, I don't know many musicians like that, Bob. You might be talking about actors or something. I don't know, but the musicians that I everybody I've met, they've always been wonderful. Oh wait, wait. Let's not talk musicians. Let's okay. talk stars. You okay. mentioned David Bowie. Not the okay. person in the band, not they may be just as responsible, but the front person or the singer songwriter. Okay. Yes, there's a musician mentality. All musicians get along. It's different from the other thing. But I'm talking about the household names. I mean, I I have been backstage with Cat Stevens. Couldn't be nicer. I've been backstage with a couple of times with people who are the most famous in the world, and they're jerks. Okay. Oh, I I I don't want to mention the. I want to know. You're asking me. Hey, let me ask you. Hey, what? (laughs) Okay, well, I'm just trying. Spill it, Bob. Okay, I I think that uh, I don't know if I'll spill the negative, but I'll go with the positive. What are they going to do to you? They're going to sue you? What are they going to do? No, I mean, I'll 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 work my way up to it. You know, just like I'll get you to. In terms (laughs) of someone who lives up to the legend, my most positive experiences have been with Steven Tyler. He is that guy. He's fantastic. That man is full of life, and he he doesn't mind throwing around compliments, you know? Uh, exactly. Uh, and then, you know, 
but he, you know, he'll leave a message on the phone that is just wild, and then you pick him up, and he'll go straight into, you know, it's like that who he is. He's always nice. He lives up to the legend. And I, I, we've crossed paths a couple of times, and I think uh, Jane met him at one. I don't know where it was. She met him, and he said that he called us like rock goddesses or rock icons or something. And Jane Coe came back and said, "You're not going to believe what Steven, Steven Tyler said about us." We're like, "Fuck, Steven Tyler, yeah." Oh my god, uh, are you kidding? I love Aerosmith so much. Ah, love that band. Name the two best experiences of meeting famous musicians. Well, David Bowie. So you met yeah. Bowie. What were the circumstances? Did you have okay. a conversation? All right. So I've met him a couple of times, but the first time I met him was actually the most, the best of all the times was the first time because I got to really hang out with him and spend time talking with him. Even though I was scared shitless, I could barely speak, but it was, we had done a show at, um, where the hell in San, uh, in uh, New York city. I, I don't even know if we had a record deal yet. But we did a show at Wendell. What's the name of that venue? He looked it up the other day. I couldn't think of it in New York City. God damn it. Not, whatever, I'll, I'll come back to that. But at our show was John Lennon. Where was the Where was the venue that we played at when I said John Lennon was at, was there? And, Ritz. Oh, the Ritz. Bob, right. You remember the Ritz? Sure. Okay. So we were playing there. So it was John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Um, 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 David Bowie, all the dudes from Manus, all the guys from Manus, because we had just finished playing with them in England, and um, um, da, 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 who else? Pete Townsend. They were at our show, and after the show, they came back. This was 1980. They came back, and we and met them in the VIP room at the Ritz. Now, unfortunately, John and Yoko had left at, during the encore. And it was, but only a couple months later when he was murdered. Um, so, you know, that was horrible, that whole thing. But uh, didn't get to meet him, but did get to hang out with David and his assistant, Coco, who was seen to be with him at all times. Um, and there was a lot going on. We were all partaking in various uh, substances. Uh, it was fun. It was great. It was perfect for the time. He was such a gentleman very conversational and he was super cool. He was, he was everything I had hoped he would be. He was a really super cool guy. Very approachable. He wasn't a dick. He was a nice guy. And Pete, God bless him. Pete was, was kind of out of it. He, he was draped on two. He had a woman on under, uh, under each arm, sort of holding him up, walking him around. I think he had, had, had a little too much that evening. And the guys from Manus were all out about saying hi to everybody because we just finished touring with them. And uh, I, my, uh, the bass player Mark Bedford was my boyfriend at the time, so <laughs> it was all great. It was okay, great what's it like playing the drums and all of a sudden seeing John Lennon? I mean, my body spikes when you tell the story. Hey, I, hey, I mean, I, I couldn't see him or anything when I was playing, but to know that he actually came to a go-go show and saw us play, you know, that's a big one in my book. That's a big one. Okay, so meeting David Bowie was great. One other uh, rock star, great experience. Oh, well, meeting uh, the Rolling Stones, meeting the Stones when we opened for them and getting to spend a little time with Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman, although Charlie 
was my hero growing up. I, you know, I mean, if it wasn't for Charlie Watts and John Bonham, I don't know if I'd have continued playing drums. Um, they were, I mean, I idolized them. And when I met him, it was another one of those moments where I, you know, could hardly speak, but I did because I had to, I had to say something. And once again, I don't know if it's just being English or what the deal is, but he was such a gentleman. Uh, very, very uh, quiet and soft-spoken. Perfect gentleman. Do you remember what you spoke about? Hell no. No, <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. But it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, I was in his presence, and I actually got to sit on his drum kit and fool around with his drums at Soundcheck, which was a big thrill for me. And I've said this story many times, but that's when his drum tech said to me, Gina, that that uh, that uh, rug that his drums are sitting on, the drums are, are pittance compared to what that rug costs. And I thought <laughs> that was so that was so very Charlie Watts, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, right, absolutely. Yeah, of course it was. Okay, let's go back to Baltimore. How many yeah. generations was your family in Baltimore? Oh Christ, I don't know really. I uh, well, let's see. My mom's side of the family, my grandfather. Mitchell Miskowski, Mitch Miskowski, he was, he came over when he was a, a boy on a boat, cabin boy or whatever they used to call him. And he, he came over to uh, the a port Baltimore is where he, where he got off and, you know, grew, grew, became a man and met uh, my grandmother, Jean Hill. Her family was from Ireland. Um, and that's who I'm named after Regina Hill. Um, and my father's side of the family, uh, the shocks were all German. And I actually uh, found out that my father's aunts and uncles were in the vaudeville circuit. Um, and so there was a little bit of that showbiz uh, in my blood, maybe. <laughs> okay. I always thought when you broke that shock was a made up name. So that is nah, the family. It's German. It's German, man. And it was yeah. it was shock when it was in Germany. It wasn't changed in America, or you don't know. Do you know what? I'm not positive. This is something I'm going to look up. I think that our name was Shook, S C H O O K, and it got changed to S C H O C K. I think it was Shook. Okay. But you know what? Now that you remind me of that, I want to look it up, and I don't know why I think that, but there must have been something that I found. Uh, that leads me in that direction. Okay. How'd your parents meet? Oh, well, they were, uh, my mom went to Catholic school 12 years, as did I, as did my brother. Um, my mom and dad met when she was in high school and they were high school sweethearts. When she graduated high school, uh, she was 18 and married my father, who was 21. And my father was the first sweetheart she ever had. She had never had a boyfriend. She met my father and that was that. And they lived the next 72 years together in marital bliss. They were the most beautiful couple you'd ever want to meet because they were so in love. I mean, that doesn't happen often, but I'm going to tell you what, mine's like a storybook thing. Like my parents were crazy about each other. And they were both really good looking and they loved to dance. And they loved to get dressed up and like to go to New York and shake it up. You know, they were really happening. So what did they do for a living? Um, my father worked on the waterfront. It was a stevedore or 
along shore or whatever. You know, on the waterfront, when you watch that film, that's my father. Marlon Brando, that's my father. Because my dad was offered a lot of money to go to New York and work, take care, you know, work on the docks up there. And he wouldn't do it because we all know it's run by the mafia. All that was. And uh, so it's not run by the mafia in Baltimore? Uh, not so much. It wasn't at the time. Not so much. New York was boom. That was it. You were in when you went to New York and you can't get out once you get in. We all know that. So, um, no, dad said no to this huge opportunity, this opportunity to make a hell of a lot more money. And I remember that it was a big deal about moving to New York. And he finally said, no, he wasn't going to do it. Stayed in Baltimore. And he was the, you know, he became the, the head of the pier one, um, um, and treated everybody the way they're supposed to be treated uh, because there were some folks that work, dock workers that sign an X on their paycheck. Okay. Um, and my father treated everyone the same. Um, and uh, my mom, she was a model and then a beautician and then a homemaker. And then she decided she wanted to uh, hang out with my dad a little bit more. So my father leased some property right next to Pier 1 where he worked on Clinton Street in Baltimore, which I got a story about. That I'll tell you about the wire, about the building that he built. He was a builder. He could build anything. Anyway, um, he leased this property and he built a little carryout shop so that my mother could work there. And he was right next door. And, you know, uh, I would work there during the summer and the hours were from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. And um, that's what I would do every summer. And my mom did that for many years. And then she got bored with that. And so we sold that business and then mom became just a homemaker. You know, she was very good. Her cooking was really good. And Okay, yeah, so cool. what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? A uh, very blue collar, middle class neighborhood, Dundalk. Um, everyone knew each other. Uh, we left our doors open at night. Uh, we'd sometimes sleep on the front porch when it was too hot, um, before we could afford air conditioning. Um, and it was, uh, I really had an idyllic, uh, childhood. I really, I really have to say that it was all kind of beautiful. And what kind of kid were you? Shy member rotten. of the group? I was a, a rotten kid. My mother said she loved rotten kids. I was uh, bad, not really bad, but I was, uh, rambunctious. You could say whatever. I, I was always it, okay, I grew up, I'm a tomboy. I grew up with, I didn't have any girls in the neighborhood. It was all guys. So I grew up riding bicycles with them. You know what I mean? And running around and busting windows out. And, you know, <laughs> I had a little dirt bike, all that kind of stuff. You know, I didn't, I didn't there were no girls, you know, until I, in high school, then I, I got to have other girlfriends, you know. Uh, but, uh, man, it was a wonderful childhood. And, uh, you know, my my uh, my dad's mom lived with us for many years and um, it was all good. It was always and it was our house was sort of the main base on the street because my father used to love to take all the kids on hay rides and he'd bring them down our shore home. And, you know, they were something else. Let me tell you, Bob, they were really something else. Um, OK, so you had a vacation home on the shore. Yeah, down on the Chesapeake Bay, my Mom and dad had to borrow a thousand dollars from, uh, uh, my, my father's, uh, sister and they bought some property, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. And my father built the home, the shore home down there with a couple of buddies from work. He'd work on the weekends 
and built this home that is still there, that is gorgeous, on a beautiful piece of property, um, right on the water. And uh, so we'd spend a lot of time there every summer, um, fishing and crabbing, and they would have their friends down. They'd be drinking gin and tonic, and the kids would be running around. You can have a little sip of that. And Oh, man, it was just wonderful, you know? And he he had a Super 8 camera that he would take. He would take pictures on because he and mom would go to New York a lot and they they were on the prices right and mom won a mink, a mink stole and he won a Super 8 camera. So that's when he started taking Super 8 videos. I I had all that film uh, put on a DVD. So I, I have that. I have all those Super 8 films. Okay, so your brother is older. What was he like growing up? Oh my God. Well, my brother's seven years older than I am. So he was protective of me. It was my brother and my cousins that lived across the street, Henry and Dennis, and I ran with them. Well, they had to sort of take me. My brother had to sort of watch out for me. Um, and uh, I, I just ran around with them and he was good. And then, then came a time when, you know, he was like 19 or 20 and he was out the door all the time. So I was just sort of left to my own devices, which was sitting in my bedroom, putting headphones on and playing with every song that I loved. Um, I was just immersed in music. Um, what what, what would happen in the next 40, 50 years for your brother? What's he been up to? My brother, he, got, he went to college. My parents were disappointed that I didn't go to college, but I made out all right. So they were happy with the ending story here. But uh, yeah, my brother's a pretty bright guy. Um, he wanted to be a professor um, and he didn't work out that way. He spent a lot of time traveling and then he worked on the waterfront, excuse me, with my father and you make a lot of money working on the waterfront. And my brother worked there for like 10 years and made it, made a ton of money and bought a bunch of apartment buildings um, in a neighborhood uh, uh, in Holland town. Uh, in Baltimore, it was right on Patterson Park, which is a this huge, big, beautiful park. Uh, he bought a bunch of buildings that were facing the park. And at the time, it was kind of ghetto, but it changed over the years. Um, and it butted right up against the neighborhood called Fells Point, which is kind of famous. Uh, you may have heard of Fells Point in Baltimore. Um, so John has his apartment buildings, and that's they're all paid off, and he's living the life. You know, he travels and does whatever he likes, and... Um, He's good. My brother's good. He and I don't get along that great, but it's okay. Did he get married? Did he have kids? No. No, neither one of us are married. It's like, you know what, Bob, I think about, I don't know why. Because I think the institution of marriage is kind of great, but it wasn't, it never worked out for me that way. And my brother, I guess he's the same. I don't know. I kind of think maybe it had a lot to do with growing up seeing the perfect marriage there's nothing that you could ever you could never compete with that i don't know you know you, you tend to you know when you're in a relationship you tend to say oh is he like my father is she like my mother whatever you do those things i don't know why you just do and uh be tough to to live up to the expectations that you have of of of, uh, of some of of what you would think you, you would want your other your significant other to be like when you watch the perfect love affair happen your entire life. And did your parents ever lament that you, they didn't have grandkids? Yeah, my mom did. And I said, mom, listen, if I had grandkids, I'd never be able to hang out with you as much as I do. We wouldn't <laughs> be able to do all these. 
it's true. We wouldn't be able to do all these fantastic things that we do together. I'd bring my mother on tour on tour with us. She'd be on the tour bus with the girls. And and they all loved her, you know, and my parents. They were there for everything. They were in a lot of shows. The band knew my parents very, very well and loved them. Okay. Being a stevedore, that's a as you mentioned, lucrative <laughs> because because it's so physical. Mm-hmm. Did it have an attrition? Did it, you know, your father and brother or their bodies somewhat beat up because they did well, that work? Well, my dad's body was beat up. Um, yeah, he had terrible arthritis. Um, but my father was like a little bull, man. He was strong as a horse. He loved work. He loved to work, okay? I mean, they had to pay him to get him to, to quit the job, to quit being a stevedore. You know, they had to offer him a lot of money to stop working so they could bring a younger dude in to do what he does. My dad loved to work. He didn't like sitting still. He was always building something. He was always doing something. And I tend to be more like my father because I like to stay busy. I like to, sitting around for me is like death. It's like sucks, man. I, I like to be busy all the time. Okay, so what were your first exposures to music? Oh, well, you know, uh, my parents were always playing music. And they loved to dance, which used to embarrass the hell out of my brother and I. They'd start dancing. We were so embarrassed. Um, but they listened to a lot of big band music. I grew up with big band stuff. They loved Count Basie, Cab Calloway, all these, you know, everybody, uh, Benny Goodman, uh, you know, anybody who's playing big band stuff, they were always playing and dancing too, which was hard to take, but <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that house was full of music all the time. And how did you get into popular music as opposed to the big uh, band? You know, because, uh, I still love big band stuff. That's kind of some of my favorite genre of music. Uh, that uh, uh, I just, it was, I was drawn to it. I don't know, man. I, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I had that little transistor radio on, you know, AM stuck to my ear, waiting to hear my favorite songs of the day, you know? Um, and then I, I'd call into the radio station and, and request something that I wanted to hear and wait, you know, seven hours to hear it at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, you know, I'd have that transistor radio under the covers. Um, um, you know, and as I got a little bit older, I just, I started to want to go after my brother took me to my first concert, which was Led Zeppelin opening for the who. And then it was nonstop. I, that was an addiction that never ended. Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Many people have a transitional moment where they really get the bug. Was it the Beatles? Was it something you heard on the radio? What made you go all in? Do you remember? Yeah. Seeing Led Zeppelin open for The Who in 1969 at Meriwether Post Pavilion. Yeah, but you were listening to to the radio before that. Yes, I was. What got you started doing that? I don't know. It just, it, 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 it spoke to me. It was something that, that I felt that was important to me. You know, I don't know. Why do you love doing what you do? It just, it speaks to you. It touches you in a way that other things don't. I knew as a kid that I wanted to be involved in music. I didn't know what part I would play, but I, it, it like I said, it spoke to me. It, it touched me. It was important in my life. Okay, so tell me how you ended up going to that Led Zeppelin Who gig. My brother had to babysit me, and so he took me. And um, I just remember, you know, what, seeing Led Zeppelin, that was their first tour of the States. And that was mind-blowing. But then to see The Who come out and play and then destroy their instruments at the end of the show, I mean... I'm a kid, I'm 11 years old or 11 or 12. And I, that blew my mind. I was like, I want to be on that stage. I don't care what I'm doing. If I'm singing or playing the drums or playing bass or guitar, whatever it is, I want to be up on that stage. This is what I want to do. I never thought about gender. That didn't, I didn't even think about that for a second. Oh, I'm a girl. That never occurred to me. It was like, I want to do what they do. I love this. This is what I want to do. So you went home. What was your first step? Did you buy the Zeppelin album? Did you get an instrument? No, I, uh, uh, first thing for me was I got, uh, a bass, a bass guitar. Cause I thought, oh, it's only four strings. That'll be easy. And I, it didn't, it wasn't, I, I wasn't crazy about it. So I bought a guitar, took a couple lessons and that was too slow. I could like listen to things, Bob, and figure out how to play it. You know, I think I have an ear. That was a gift, I think. And then I, I thought, well, I'll try drums. So I saved up all my allowance money and I bought a drum set. And uh, What kind of drum uh, set? What brand? They, they were Lido Supremes. And I bought them at uh, 
old man Petro, his, his music store up on Eastern Avenue. I used to ride my bicycle up there. And, um, Do you remember how much you paid? I don't, but I bet you I have. I think I have those receipts around here somewhere. Wow. I did save it. I have that. I'm not kidding you. I do have that, Bob. <laughs> um, I got those drums and put my headphones on. I had the drums set up in my bedroom. And I started playing and I knew right away that this was going to be the instrument that I, I would choose to, to spend my time trying to get good at, you know, be better at. And because it felt really easy. It felt like I didn't have to think about it. Uh, it, 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 it felt, it felt easy. And, you know, when you're 11 or 12 years, 13 years old, you don't want to, you don't have time to mess around with stuff. You just want to go out and do it. And so playing drums, I didn't have to think. I just put headphones on and it, it came very naturally to me. So you never took a lesson? <laughs> never took a lesson. Okay. So you're playing at home. Then how do you get in a band? Oh, well, first of all, there weren't a lot of girls playing drums during that early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. So that it was easy to get in bands. And I'll tell you what, I was I, I remember being in a couple bands and these and the guys, it was always guys, um, you know, they were in their 20s and they would have to sneak me in the back door because I was underage. Um, and they were all doing co- we were doing covers, you know. Um, and that went on for several years. And then I got into a band and these were guys in my neighborhood called we, and our band was called scratch and sniff. And we were Baltimore's first punk new wave band. And, um, it was great. I learned a lot from George and, uh, Charles. Uh, they were really a bass and guitar player, really good musicians. And it opened up my world to like Brian Eno and uh, Roxy Music, and, you know, I, I started listening to more than just Aerosmith or Leonard Skinner or the Stones or the Beatles, all of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty incredible. We would do, we'd play four sets a night. We'd do two sets of original songs and two sets of covers. That was a big deal. And we got, we, we did a couple of shows at the Marble Bar, which was the premier punk club to play in, in Baltimore. Because, like, uh, bands would come in, like, the uh, the Ramones or Talking Heads, they play at the Marble Bar. So that was a big deal. <laughs> and were you getting paid? Yeah. But who remembers what that was? It didn't, I didn't care if we were making any money. It was just to be able to do it. No, did. no. My question is, if you got paid, what did you do with, what did you do with do the with money? Do with the money? I probably bought clothes. I don't really remember, but I would imagine that, you know, I, I would probably bought some really cool bell bottoms or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I probably bought clothes. Okay, so and what was your experience with Catholic school? Now you're in high school, you're rambunctious. Well, How's that going? Yeah, I got suspended, you know. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I was just used to that. The nuns used to scare the shit out of me. I mean, they were, they were tough. And I guarantee you, man, I did my homework every night. It was kind of a drag because everybody in the neighborhood when they get home from school. You know, they were out playing and having fun, but I'd be in there doing my homework because I was afraid of those nuns coming into school the next day and getting smacked in the face or having my hands mashed with a pointer. You know, I mean, they were rough. They were tough. But I'll tell you what, um, 
they're part of the reason why I have the work ethic that I do. Uh, you know, it's like if I, you know, if you're going to, I feel like you're going to do something, do it right. Don't mess around with a half-assed situation here. Why bother? Um, and, you know, so it was, it was part, it all worked out well in the end. Although I must say that I would like to send a, my psychiatrist bill to the Catholic church because they did screw me up in many ways. Like they filled me with guilt. I was always, I'm still guilty about everything. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that was going to be my next question. So you go to the therapist? Yeah. As an adult. I know. So how long have you gone? How frequently? When did you start? Oh, I've been doing it for many, many years. I haven't, I haven't done it for a while though. I go in, not that frequently, but I did like in the nineties go a lot because you know, I had to deal with like the guilt of making it and, you know, oh my God, what people think and all, you know, it's, there's a, there's a Catholic guilt and it's a real thing. It's, it's real. Um, and it definitely, definitely got me. How does it affect you today, if at all? It still does affect me, honestly. I feel like I'm not worthy of things. You know, it's weird. It's like I, I put the time and I do all the right things, but then I feel like, oh, you know, you're not really worthy. You, sh you know, there's people that deserve that more than you do. And then I then I draw strength from what my, the way my parents raised me that were sort of kick ass. And yes, you can do anything. It's this crazy dichotomy, you know, I mean, but and they sent me to Catholic school. So uh, I don't know. OK, are you still a believer? Do you still go to church? No, I don't go to church. I might go a couple of times a year or something. But uh, when I walk into a church, I feel uh, it's like a place that's to, to meditate or something. I, you know, I choose to believe what I believe. I, uh, I feel like I'm a spiritual person, but organized religion is a little disturbing to me. Um, I don't know. I'm sort of mixed up about it all, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> okay, so why'd you get suspended in high school? Oh, Jesus. Because the disciplinarian nun, doctor, her name was John Helene. How do you like that? I just I can't <laughs> believe I remembered her name. John Helene, she was such a bitch. Um, she didn't like me because I was, I spent half my time trying to figure out how to get, how to get into trouble without getting caught. And she knew that. And um, she, she, I was, I was uh, suspended for having a bad attitude. <laughs> there was nothing that I actually did that she caught me at. And actually my mother and father went up there and were like, what do you mean? A bad attitude? What is, what does that mean? You know, uh, it's crazy. Catholic school was fucking nuts. I got to stay. So did you <laughs> grad, did you graduate? Yeah, I did. Yeah, of course I did. Any thought of going to college or like, I'm done? What was going through your head? No, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't wait to finish school so I could just start playing in clubs, in stinky, dirty clubs. All I wanted to do was be, you know, a, a musician, be a drummer and, 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 and work and make some money and, you know, try to find a band that I fit in that really spoke to me. And, you know, Scratch and Sniff was a band that, that I loved those guys and I, I loved where we were going. Um, but after I, then, then I'm going to get ahead of myself because after that, 
I I got the opportunity to work with Edie, the egg lady from John Waters films. Let's let's wait. I want to get yeah. into that. Mm-hmm. Let's go back. One thing you put in your book is you basically went to see everybody. Tell me about I your co- tell me about your concert going experience. Where you got the money for tickets? Who was good? Who was bad? Well, let me tell you something. I had albums full of photographs with my Instamatic camera from all the concerts I went to. And I learned that, okay, they play, if they played the Baltimore Civic Center, the hotel they were going to stay in was going to be the Holiday Inn, which was right next door. So I was like, okay, how am I going to meet these people? I've got to meet them. You know, I need to learn from them, right? I'd see them on stage and I was just knocked out. So I would go across the street and try to get their autographs and take a photo with them. And I figured out that the way to get to meet them was you go up the service elevator and you go on a floor, you get on the phone and you ask to be, you ask to be connected to either the bass player or the drummer. Cause they were usually the guys in the band that gave their real name. They didn't have an alias. And so I would ask for them and I'd get the room. I'd get like a four digit number. The last three digits was the room number. So I would go and I'd have somebody with me, you know, a friend. And we'd rap on their door and I'd say, can I take a photograph with you? Can I take a picture with you? And they always said yes. But I remember like Paul Rogers um, from Bad Company. I have a photograph of him where he's putting his arm up because he didn't want his picture taken, but I took it anyway. And like I have pictures of Ted Nugent and Aerosmith and Rod Stewart and yes, and you name it. I was taking, I was taking pictures and I was meeting these people and saying, I want to do that. The guys in Jay Giles band. I mean, I... It was all I lived for, Bob. I'm getting excited just talking about it. Yeah. Where did you get the money for the tickets? Save up my allowance. Okay. Doing dishes, doing dishes, cleaning the house every weekend, cutting the grass, taking the garbage out, doing anything I could to make the money to buy those tickets. So tell me the ED story. The ED story. So when I moved out of my house at the age of 20, I moved into Fells Point, which was sort of the hip area. And ED had a store on... Broadway called Edith's Shopping Bag. And I would go in and visit her all the time, you know, and she'd be sitting at the cash register with her, like, hand, her, her servant lady, Jeannie, who looked like a crazy old witch, but she waited on Edie hand and foot. It was a strange scene, but kind of great. Uh, only Baltimore. It's such, it was all John Waters film, the whole thing, man. It's incredible. Anyway, I'd go in there and I'd talk to her. And she'd oh, Gina, how are you? What are you doing? And, I got a punk band I want to put together. Are you, you know, do you want to get in the punk? I was like, yes, Edie, I want to get in this band. We're going to go to New York, LA and San Francisco. Of course. So we put together this band, myself and two other girls. And um, with Edie, we rehearsed a couple times, put a couple songs together. I don't even remember. They were, it was all slapped together quickly. It was just the thought of getting to play at CBGB's, Max's Kansas City. And then getting the first time I ever flew on a plane, okay? Flying across country to play in Los Angeles, in L.A., Hollywood. Woo! Um, three nights, uh, three shows, one night at the Newark Theater. And then up to San Francisco to play at the Newark, at the, um, sorry, the Warfield Theater. This was like a dream come true. And I can thank Edie for that, which ultimately goes down to thanking John Waters, you know, for for discovering Edie, who was just a sweet, old, kindly lady that loved all the attention. She was a doll, you know? Um, 
So we did the eating the egg shows. That was fantastic. Uh, you know, I couldn't believe all that I was experiencing and the punk scene was thriving great and came back to Baltimore and I was, I knew that it was time to make a decision and I had to leave. I had to go. Uh, after experiencing that, there was no turning back. Um, I, uh, saved up money for like a year and then asked my friend Babs from high school, you want to go to LA? And she was like, yeah. So we got my dad's pickup truck, everything I own and, and flew across, I mean, and drove across country. And, um, at, at that point I still had like an Instamatic camera that I was taking photographs with, um, drove across country and in search of a band. I didn't know who it would be, where it would, I knew it was going to be in LA. Um, I, that was the easiest place. The cost of living was easier in LA than in San Francisco or New York. And, um, yeah, so that was it. We, we, we started our journey across country and I was taking, taking pictures all the time. Okay. So you land. What's the yeah. journey from there to getting in the go-go's? Well, I was staying with a guy named Steve Martin, not the Steve Martin. Um, He's a filmmaker and Steve and his brother, Doug Martin, they're identical redheaded twins, um, had done the show, produced the shows at the Newark. So I stayed with Steve and he was taking me around to all the clubs and I, I got into bands right away. I put my name up at all the stores, you know, the music stores. And, um, so, and Steve started taking me around to different different venues to see bands and he said there's this band the go-go's gina you need to see them you need to get in the band kick the drummer out and you need to be the drummer and then you, and then you're going to be you're going to be big stars and i was like oh, okay steve so he took me to club 88 to see the go-go's play and it was fantastic i they were having such a great time on stage it was like such a joyful experience it was like i because i was so serious about music everything had to be perfect i was way too serious and they injected this this whole fun thing which i never thought about oh this can be fun as well they were having the best time on stage they were making mistakes it didn't matter um and people were loving it mistakes and all you know and and i also heard something in the songs that they were playing that i felt had value and i just was like i told steve right away yeah i want to get in this band so his brother Doug was having a party that weekend at his place down in Santa Monica. And he invited the girls and whoever else was in the scene at that time, the punk scene. And they were there. And I met, I think I met uh, Belinda, Margot, and Jane. And they were, said they were looking for a drummer. Uh, and I said, well, I'm looking to join a band. And I invited them over to Steve's house that weekend. They were the following weekend. And um, I, Steve was so good to me. He allowed me, when I drove across country, I had all my vinyl. I had a PA system in that truck, all my clothes, everything I owned. I had a PA set up in his living room in the house on Beverly Glen. And I brought amps with me as well. So the girls came in, we started playing. And a couple of songs later, I knew that this was going to be the right, the right fit for, for all of us. 
And and it was. And everything changed. It all changed after that. Who was the who was the drummer before you? How'd they get rid of that drummer? Um, they got rid of Elisa. I don't know. I don't as I was told, I don't think she was like really uh, into playing drums. I think it was just a fun thing she was doing. Not that they were that serious either. Um, they just want to hang out with their friends and have fun. But I don't know whatever the problems were, but I was more than happy to step in because when I stepped in, they thought I was like a big shot because I could actually play. You know what I mean? I was like really serious. And I was like, you know, guys, we need to rehearse, you know, every night after work. They were used to rehearsing a couple of times a month. And I had come from this background where, you know, you rehearse after work every day, like four or five nights a week. You gotta, you gotta play to get better. It's not going to happen unless you spend the time and put in the work to make yourself better at your instrument or at your songwriting, whatever it may be, or your singing, whatever it is. You got to put the time in. And they, they went right along with it. They were happy. They were happy to, uh, to change their ways about that. They were, they were willing to put the time in. Cause I think everybody kind of knew that we were something different, something special. And, and if we, if we put the time in, it was gonna, it was gonna happen for us. Okay, this was at the tail end of a huge scene in Los Angeles. All the, you know, the only ones who really broke through were the knack, but a million bands were signed. Right. Oh, the motels. They made it. They actually got a deal on a real, True, a real record company. That they were capital. Happened even a little later, though. But in any event, you know, uh, God, all those bands, I have those records. You know, Danny Wilde had his band. and Oh, my God. And then there yeah. was the other band on Arista. You know, I, you know, all those things. Such a scene. But you're playing gigs. What's going through your mind in terms of the next step forward? Obviously, people knew who the Go-Go's were, but you weren't getting signed, and it wasn't happening. Yeah, yeah it was, um, I, I, you know... I guess none of the labels wanted to take a take a chance on this all girl band because there had never been an all uh, female band that had been hugely successful. And we all know how record labels are. They want to they find a formula that works and they stick to it, you know, um, because they figure, you know, they're going to make plenty of money. It's all about making that's the bottom line. Are they going to make money? We came into the picture and we were sort of like it or not, we're here, we're not going anywhere. Look at the crowds that are coming to our shows. You can't deny that we're getting, we're getting bigger and bigger. The, the, you know, the, the, the line is now around the block. It's got to start like registering that this, that something's going on here. And, you know, it did finally, but only with IRS Records, who was sort of this indie label that was distributed through A&M, which was fantastic. Um, and John Guarneri was a guy that worked at IRS who, who came to see us play. And then he told Miles Copeland, you got to see this band. Of course, Miles came and we signed with Miles April Fool's Day of 1981. <laughs> and that was it, man. Okay, let's go back a little bit slower because I'm on the other side of the fence. I'm reading the news back when you read it in physical paper. There was even an article in the LA Times, why have the Go-Go's not gotten a record deal? Really? Okay. Yeah, well, that makes sense because nobody would give us a deal. We were goddamn selling out every club we played in. And we were going up to San Francisco. And we were playing in New York. We're selling out all these places. What's the problem? So did you sign the deal with IRS before you went to England or did you go to England first? After. Yeah, we went to England. That really got the ball rolling because when we went to England, 
we toured with Madness and the Specials, so we got really tight during those tours because it was, I mean, it was rough. Those, those, the audience did not want to see us. They hated our guts and let us know by throwing bottles and spitting all over us all night. Um, so we came back and we, you know, we had been, we had, we just finished the school of hard knocks when we played the UK. Um, so, uh, when we came back here, it was crazy. We thought we were going to really happen in the UK. And as it turns out, we didn't, we kind of flopped over there. But when we, when we came back to the States, we got the beat, the single on stiff was happening in the club scene. People were playing it and it was really starting to, you know, become, uh, a club favorite. People were knowing who the Go-Go's were. And um, we get back to LA and that's what it really, it really did change. Cause then, then it was like, instead of playing one night at the Starwood, you have to do two or three nights. Uh, it changed a lot. And we were really tight by that time because we've been playing every night. Um, and uh, that was a pretty cool time. Uh, we play playing the Roxy and the Whiskey and the Starwood, and then going up to San Francisco and play Mabuhe. And then then the venues got bigger and bigger. It was it was a it was it was all welcomed. Okay, the stiff single we got the beat the original version. Yeah, that was done yeah. before the IRS deal, right? Yes, yeah, we did that. with A guy named Dave, Ro- I think, uh, was Dave, Robinson. Dave Robinson. D- yeah, Dave Robinson. Stiff yeah, Records. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he saw the band play and he had talked with Ginger several times about doing a, a deal. He wanted our publishing, but Ginger was like, no way. Um, but we did do that, that single deal with him. And, you know, as much as we were like, oh, that's such crap. We don't really care about that. It worked to our advantage when we came back to the States because, it, like I say, it was happening in the clubs. They were playing it. So people were all over the country were hearing the go-go's for the first time. Um be it an English import, fine, whatever it takes. Um, so when we came back here, I think that uh, the crowds that were showing up at, at, at our, our concerts were so big that people couldn't ignore it. And you know what was funny is that I, I'm thinking about this. All the major labels offered us, several major labels offered us uh, EP deals. Nobody would offer us an LP deal except the IRS records. So we signed with them. Okay, you signed, you went to the UK, you came back. What was the process and the time period of getting it together and recording the album? Uh, okay, so we get back to LA, we sign our deal. Uh, uh, Miles Copeland had an idea of bringing in Richard Goddard, uh, a very famous songwriter, great producer. He had, he had produced a couple of Blondie records, thought it would be a perfect fit, and it was. Um, so we packed up. And we went to New York for several months to work on our first uh, album, Beauty and the Beat. And um, Richard was was uh, guiding us and helped us to uh, realize that what we needed to do was slow everything down a little bit so you could actually hear the melody, the vocal melody, which was sort of flying by so fast you couldn't appreciate it. We slowed it all down. We're still a punk band at heart, but we became, what was happening is we had these great pop melodies over top of these punk, punk chords and, you know, we were playing really fast. Um, he helped us change that up and make it more accessible uh, to the general public. And it was, at first, when we heard our record, we hated it. We thought, oh God, this isn't what we really sound like. What has he done to us? 
And then seven or eight months later, when the record's number one, we were like, Richard is genius. What a great <laughs> guy. He knew exactly what to do. And we didn't, you know, whatever. Uh, Richard is genius. Uh, he's a great song man, and he did know what to do with those songs. And he gave it a very classic sound, okay? It wasn't exactly what we wanted, but it's classic. It's cool. Okay, when you showed up in New York, were the songs already written? How'd you pick um, those songs? Yeah, yeah they, were, they were already written when we got there. We had, you know, several songs. He chose what he thought would be best on the record, and we worked on them. We worked on the arrangements, which were pretty close, but he really, he was... Richard's such a song guy. It's all about the songs. You got to start with that or you got nothing. You got to have a great song. So did he hear the stuff before you came to New York? Did yes. he work with you? No, he, he had been sent tapes. Okay. So now you're in New York for months. Needless to say, I hear ka-ching, 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 the bill, which is ultimately being paid by you. But of you course. also portray a wild time. In addition to recording... You're hanging out with people, Jody Foster, going all around. What was what was going on then? Uh, we were we were kids having a great time in our early twenties. We got a little money finally. We're we're on our way to perhaps being rock stars, and it couldn't get much better. You know, we were. I mean, that was sort of when the Brat Pack was happening all with Rob Lowe and Andrew McCarthy. That whole bunch that was all happening at the same time. We were all part of it. I am so lucky to have been involved in all that. It was great, Bob. It was great. You know, it, it felt like, oh, my God, we have arrived. Here are our peers. Look at everyone. I mean, we're all like, we're all on our way up. We're all working. Everybody's got their shit together. We are partying, but we're young. And so that makes a difference. And it was the 80s where you sort of, I don't know, that mentality was so different then. Um Okay, so let's just assume it's the '80s, or even yeah. today, and yeah. I draw and I say, "There's going to be this great party. You have to go alone." Is that cool with you? No, I have to have my my group with me. I have, my, my, I have to have my girl gang with me. <laughs> I don't think none of us went, went. None of us went anywhere alone. We always had somebody. A couple girls from the from the band were always hanging out together. You know, safety in numbers, Bob. Okay, so you go, and it helps to have your wing people. But it sure does. Are you the person starting the conversation, making friends, or are you the one talking after they've already brought these other people into the circle? I probably talk after they're brought into the circle because I am, believe it or not, kind of shy. So I'd wait for introductions and let other people do that, and then I'd sort of weasel my way in there. <laughs> okay, so... When we first got on camera here, you were a ball of energy, really upfront, really energetic. Then we touched upon your parents. You got sad. So in terms of your personality, do you get depressed? Are you always upbeat? How do you cope? What do you like? Uh, Bob, I'm human. That's all. Of course I get depressed. Um, but I try to stay as positive as possible because you only go around once. And I want, I want to look back on my life as, as a, as, uh, as a gift and, and, and try to keep it a joyful experience because you know what, there's so much crap going on uh, that can bring you down on a daily basis. And I try to, um, I absorb only so much and then I have to shut it out because 
everything, I, it affects me deeply. And I, you know, I just want to be happy and healthy. And I want the people that I love to be happy and healthy. And, you know, I want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's happening in a couple of weeks. Duh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm okay, Bob. I'm okay. Okay. So the record comes out. When's the first time you hear a song on the radio? And what's that like? I'm in my car. And I heard, uh, I think, was Our Lips Are Sealed. And um, that's when I felt like, oh, my God, we really are going to make it. Like, this is it. We're on the radio. My parents can hear this. My friends can hear this. I started getting calls from back in Baltimore. Oh, my God, I heard you on the radio. Blah, 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 blah. You know, wow, it's great. How incredible is that? I'm a kid from Dundalk. You know, I go to L.A. with everything I have in the back of my dad's pickup truck. And here it is a couple of years later. I got a song on the radio. Pretty magical. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Okay, you have your story, but let's just assume the Go-Go's didn't exist. Would you have made it anyway? I don't know. I have no idea. I know that 
I was very driven and I was looking for the right people to work with, but I have no idea. I really don't. I would have kept playing and playing until I found the right fit. I know that. Okay. So over time, the record builds ahead of steam and it's mega successful. You were on SNL, you know, you had the famous video where you're jumping in the fountain. Were you moving so fast you couldn't think about it? What was the experience? That's exactly, Bob. That's exactly what it was. Things were happening at such a rapid pace that I don't think any of us had uh, time to really take it all in. Um, You know, we were just like, uh, just doing whatever we were told to do. Uh, uh, And and it was all supposed to be part of what it takes to make your record sell and you know, to be a part of whatever of whatever that rock stardom stuff is. We were just trying to do what we were supposed to do. Um, and we didn't have really, we didn't, we didn't, never took time to really sit down and, and talk and think about it. And, uh, you know, that's the way that record labels pushed you back then. You would get off tour and have a couple weeks off and then go right back on, on tour, go right back out on tour. When you finish that tour, you come back and work on a record. And then you go right back out on tour. That's, that's the way it, worked and that's what we were used to you know um you know in retrospect it's like oh my god you need to take time off to find yourself and to learn how to really communicate with each other um there wasn't a lot of time for that okay so who said when to make this second record the record company or the band and was the band ready oh, the, record to this- company. the record company the record company. Did you have the songs and when were they written? We had some of the songs. Um, but I think that most of that stuff was written while we were on tour. We didn't have time to go home and work on stuff. Um, you know, the, the, you know the old saying, the first record is a lifetime, takes a lifetime right. to make. Second one, you got to quick get it out. Uh, and of course, we're all worried about the sophomore jinx, you know. It can never be as good as the first one or I mean, it was incredible that our first album sold the way that it did. So we knew the second one was going to be tough. You know, we were going to get, they're going to say, oh, the first record you sold this many. What's the problem with the second one? We did the best we could. That's all. Okay. The second album comes out. Kathy's got this song, Vacation. You work that up. That becomes a hit. What's the perception being in the band of the second record? I think that... um, we all felt rushed with that. We did feel rushed on the second record. Absolutely. And thank God Kathy had written Vacation. And we brought it into the band, changed it up a little bit, worked up the arrangement, and it became a go-go song. And that, you know, was the was the single. And thank God Kathy had written it. <laughs> and what about the other songs? Were they written in the studio? No, they were written on tour. Did Nothing's you con- ever written in the studio, Bob. We have to have come in with the prepared. Did you consciously say, we'd better be writing because we're going to have to make a record, or it happened spontaneously? I think it happened spontaneously. I think we were all too busy and wound up, you know, at that particular time with everything that's going on around us. And that's what I say. What, what, what I'm saying here is that there wasn't a lot of thought put into anything. It was just do it, do it, do it, get it done, put the record out. You know, we, we should have been allowed a little bit more time to do everything, but 
we didn't know any better. Okay, then you make the third record with Martin Russian, who, of course, had huge success with the uh, Human League, is no longer with us. How did that come together? Um, well, we did have some time off then, and Martin, I adored. I thought that Human League record, Dare, was a masterpiece. And when his name was brought up, I think it was Kathy and myself that really pushed for him. Um, I mean... That album, like I say, that album, Dare, is a masterpiece. And Martin was, you know, produced it. So I was like, please, just let's do the record with him. Everybody agreed to do it, went over to England um, to work on that record. But unfortunately, this was the height of the drug intake. And also, everybody had plenty of money. And uh, and the band was splintering at that point. We were, you know, there was a lot, a lot of, there was problems. And... Um, no, we weren't communicating. We weren't realistic about our situation. Once again, we're just doing what we were told to do um, and not stopping to think about the consequences of not having enough time to really work on things. On ourselves, you know, on our songs, we just had to get it together. I love that record. Nonetheless, I, I love talk show. I love the way it sounds. Martin was a great producer, a wonderful guy. Um and I, I love that record. I'm happy with that record. How did you decide not to use Richard one more time? Oh, that was done. It was time to move on. It was time. It was. We needed a change. It couldn't be the same thing again. Come on. Okay, so the third record comes out. There's no obvious single. Ultimately, well, Jim... Head, Head Over Heels. Head Over Heels was the single. Okay, but I'm okay. trying to say it didn't have the level of success of uh, the yes, previous tracks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and... Then ultimately, Jane says she's going to leave. Did mm -hmm. you feel that coming? Was that a total surprise? What was happening there? Well, Jane wanted to be wanted to sing uh, uh, one of the songs. Uh, Forget that day, and uh, we sat down and agreed that it wouldn't be good. Belinda would feel her role would be diminished as a lead singer, and so. You know, um, that's the way that went down. And obviously, Jane couldn't deal with it and uh, told us that she was going to quit. Of course, I felt that, you know, if Jane wanted to do her own material and be, you know, be the lead singer, she should, she could go out and get a, a solo deal and still be in the band. But like I say, things were going so fast and there was a lot of drugs and there was just Everybody had their own camp and people that were pushing them to do this and that. And our management was not guiding us. They weren't really taking care of things the right way. Um, you know, they got to focusing on Belinda and her and she could be a star. It, 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 it was just coming apart. So the, the Jane thing was was not a surprise, but I couldn't when it actually happened. It seemed like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's really doing this. And then ultimately, ultimately, there's one more splinter with Charlotte and Belinda going off. Yeah, well, that that was the final. Yeah, that was it. Uh, that was weird because um, Kathy and I were just trying to keep things together, and Charlotte had would put Charlotte in rehab, and she was I thought would come out better, and we'd be more united, and we'd work together. As it turns out, she came out. And um, I don't know what her and Belinda were talking about, but 
we were all called into a meeting at uh, our management office and walked in and were told, Charlotte Brenda said, you know, the band is over. And that's that. And Kathy and I were mortified and couldn't believe it was happening. Um, and we just had to deal with it. That's the way it went down. It wasn't, it wasn't right. It wasn't done the right way, you know. What this band needed to do was take a year or two off and come back and communicate and, you know, do what we needed to do with each other to make it all right. Now, Charlotte, I only spent one night sitting next to her at some gig and talking to her. But based on that experience, I know this is a stupid statement, she would be the last person I would expect to get hooked on heroin. How does someone like Charlotte get hooked on heroin? I don't know. You'd have to ask her. You know, it's a personal thing. I don't know, man. You just, uh, I, maybe the people that are around you are doing it and you sort of play with it and then it becomes a habit before you know it. Uh, I had an issue with it in the 90s um, and that was out of boredom. And my thing was like, oh, we're just smoking it. It's not a big deal. Well, yeah, it is a big deal. You know, heroin is the fucking devil. It's bad news. Bad news. So how long were you uh, doing heroin and how'd you get off? Oh, I, I was in rehab like three times and before I got it together. Most people, that's one thing I have to say about Charlotte. She was in rehab once and she stayed sober. Most people it takes several times. It took me three times before I got myself together. And that's been over 20 years. I'd never do that. Never do it again. It's, uh, you just become a different person. I look at that and I think like, that's not, that's not who I am. You know, no, I'm not that person. It's dark. It's really dark. Okay. You know, it's especially prevalent heroin now as a result of the Oxycontin uh, yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah. And needless to say, heroin is much less, that's one of the reasons people take it. It's much less expensive than Oxycontin, which right. also is harder to get. But yep. what was it like? You know, have people like David Crosby who lose everything. You're taking heroin, you know, traditionally people say they spend all day thinking about where they're going to get their next fix. What was your experience? No, I just get what I need. That's all. And just stay at home and do it. That's it. When I would do that drug, I was, uh, <clears throat> had a lot, it would give me a lot of energy. So I was constantly doing something. So if I had asked you at that time, if it was open, you're doing heroin and I said, you shouldn't be doing it. You would have said. Mind your business, mind your own business. It's got nothing to do with you. And I'll tell you something, when you're doing that drug, people can say whatever they want and people around you can die, can overdose from it. It doesn't matter. You stop doing drugs when you are ready to. And I don't know what exactly that, when that happens or how that happens, but everybody has that moment. If they're lucky, I had that moment and I stopped and that's the end of it for me. I would never, I would never deal with that drug again because, uh, Trying to get off of it is such a horrible experience. I couldn't live through it. So I'll never, uh, that will never be in my life again. Okay. So if you went three times, you obviously relapsed twice. What was going on there? It's easy to relapse. You know, it's just, it's familiar territory. It numbs you up. It, it, it just makes you numb so that everything around you, good, if there's any kind of, anything that's good or bad or it just evens it all out and you're numb to everything that's around you. So uh, it's easy to live day by day. 
that way. It, you, you don't you, you don't hurt. You don't hurt. However, what about the potential concept of ODing? You just put that out of your mind, or you're well, trying to be careful. Well, if you're if you're if you're um if you're firing it, if you're using a needle, well, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I I would have never touched that. My the, the stupidity on my behalf was that I was smoking it, thinking, oh, it's not such a big deal. It's like smoking pot, but of course, that's ridiculous. Okay, the band breaks up. What goes through your head? You ultimately get a deal with House of Shock. Yes. What's what's going on there? Well, you know, when the band broke up, I was was so bitter about the way that went down, and I I couldn't I didn't want to wallow in that. So I I bitterness. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to get myself together, and I worked with Kathy for a while. And we tried to put a band together, and that didn't didn't gel in the way I hoped it would. And then I thought, okay, I'm just going to start from scratch and uh, look for the right people. I found Vance DeGeneres and uh, Vance and I started writing and then we found other players to work in the band house of shock. Uh, I got Miles Copeland to manage us. We would rehearse up at his house and we did a show at the Roxy and record labels were invited and we did one show and got a record deal with Capitol Records. And uh yeah, that was pretty cool. Do one show and get a deal. Very, very cool. And then how did it play out after that? Well then we got Richard got I brought I said I want Richard back to help make sure the songs are all together. And uh Richard came in and we did the record and then I brought in Chad Sanford who had written um I Ain't Missing You. Uh Missing You, whatever. Um I knew he was a good songwriter and uh, a good producer or brought him in to sort of work on the uh, single, fix the track a little bit more. Um, um, and we put the record out. It did what it did. Not a hell of a lot. Didn't have a lot of, didn't, didn't have a lot of uh, money behind it, pushing it. But uh, I did get a call. This sort of makes me happy. I got a call from Billy Steinberg, who's a great songwriter. And he said to me, Gina, I just had to call you to let you know I was driving to Palm Springs from L.A., which is where he lived at the time. And uh, he said, the song came on the radio and it was so good. I had to pull my car over and listen. And at the end of it, they said, oh, this is House of Shock, Gina Shock from the Go-Go's. He said, I got to tell you, that single is fantastic. Gina, you've done a great job. And it was a song, Middle of Nowhere. And that meant so much to me. And it still does to this day, you know. You know, whether your whether your record makes it or not, it's all timing and there's a lot involved in whether something happens. Money, it's sort of out of your hands once you make that record. You do the best you can to set it all up. And eh. so the record is not as successful as you ha- as it happens. How nah. disappointed were you and the, what happened with the act and what was your next step? Well, I was yeah, I was disappointed and then to make matters worse, uh the whole regime at, at, at uh, Capitol Records changed. Uh, our guy, uh, who was the head of Capitol at the time, he got ousted. Even my head of the A&R, Tom Wally, who signed me, who actually went on to help make, um, what you call it, records? I can't think of it. Um, Interscope. Anyway, Interscope, thank you. Um, and it was a tough time, but I thought I've done the best I can, and... You know, if this is what it's all about, I, I'm done with this crap. So I, I just thought, no more bands. I'm done with this. And I went to New York and thought, I'm just going to be a songwriter. 
And so I got a record deal on, I mean, a uh, publishing deal with MCA in New York. John Alexander signed me and then I just wrote for several years and, you know, worked on my songwriting skills. And, um, and in the meantime, the Go-Go's, we started playing again, started getting together and touring. Okay, a couple of things. Ginger was the original manager. Yes. Then you became part of the HK empire. Why did you get rid of Ginger? And in retrospect, how important was Ginger to your success? And to what degree did her absence uh, contribute to the breakup? Yeah, Ginger was the glue. When when we when Ginger left, we didn't fire her. We didn't want her to go. We thought that you know Ginger just started out with us, and we thought like, wow, we've reached this point where we might need a bigger management company to sort of oversee things. Can we have Ginger work with a bigger company? And, you know, I guess a lot of things went down that we weren't privy to back then. And I only found out since then when I talked to Ginger. Um, And all of a sudden, Ginger was gone. She left LA and was in New York. I don't know what happened. It was, you know, we, we were sort of like, oh my God, we didn't want her to go. We wanted her to work with with the newer management company, a big company, you know, because we knew that her input would be sorely missed. And it was. And as it, you know, turned out, the band broke up. I feel like if Ginger was there, she would have guided us the right way where things like that wouldn't have happened. I don't know, Bob. I, you know. <laughs> okay. Ginger is out. Is she bitter? Um, I think she, I don't think she was bitter about the band you'd have to ask her but i don't think she thought that we were sort of behind the way she was being treated nevertheless she's being treated really shabbily and i i uh i just felt really terrible we all feel terrible about it because we didn't like i say there were things happening that we didn't know about um when when azoff's company came in um and we loved irving he was great you know irving (laughs) Irving's such a trip. Yeah, I I don't know. I, you know, I can't say one thing that, you know, we're all friends and we love Ginger and um, she's sort of back in the fold and has been for a while. And it's really nice. Nice to have her back. Okay. Let's stay with the songwriting. Ultimately, you have some success even today, like with Miley Cyrus. So tell us about your songwriting career. Well, I, you know, I wasn't a writer initially, and then I saw how much the songwriters made. I was like, wait a minute. You know what? I'm working just as hard. Please, give me a break. I don't know what we got the beat would be without that drum beat. You know what I mean? I just had all these, it was, I couldn't figure it out. And it, and I was really angry. And uh, that, was a, that was a big part of why the band kind of broke, I'm sure it was why the band kind of broke up um, a part of it. Um so I just continued songwriting, trying to get better at my craft. And, you know, in the uh, like uh, the 2008 or nine or whatever, I, I was writing with a couple guys um, and we wrote we wrote a bunch of songs and Miley Cyrus heard one um, breakout. She had had a record done, but she heard that song and love it. She went back in and recorded it. That became the title track of her record. That was where she was going from being like a kid into a young adult. And then uh, Disney called us and uh, John Alexander was like, hey, I got this other young 
uh, act, uh, her, her name, Selena Gomez. Can you write something for us? So we, we were brought in to write for Selena and we wrote, uh, the first single, the title track and, you know, four songs for her, that record. Um, and, uh, so I felt like, well, guys, I actually can write and let me just show you what I've done. So, um, I felt vindicated <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, because, you know, um, if you're in a band and the way some things are sort of set in stone, certain people want to write with certain people. And I get that. And when you bring in other elements, it might mess with that formula or whatever. But uh, it was tough to get into the into the songwriting groove with Charlotte and Jane. Uh, it was difficult. And so I just would write what I would write and whatever was accepted by the band was. But when I wrote stuff out on my own and uh, other artists chose to record it that made me feel really good and made me feel like you know what I am a goddamn songwriter and somebody's appreciating and I didn't feel that much from the band but it's just the way it goes you know I, I don't think it was a conscious effort on their behalf it was just sort of the way things were working I don't know Bob okay are you still writing songs today I have not been uh I I haven't been for, like I say, the last six years has been all devoted to my mom and dad. And, uh, but I'm, I'm going to start getting back into that. I've been just super busy with, um, you know, the last year and a half writing this book and, uh, putting the book together, getting the photos together, all that. Um, and then of course there's always something going on in go-go land and which I'm super happy about. I feel very good about the band and the way that we communicate with each other. I, I just can't believe that all these years later, we're still, it's still the five of us and we still like care about each other. And it's a, it's a little family here, man. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Okay. Let's go back to uh, 30 years ago. You're yeah. doing house of shock. You're going through your thing. Meanwhile, Belinda has a couple of very significant hits with videos. How'd you feel yes. about that? Oh, I was pissed off. But then when I got my House of Shock deal, I was fine because I was like, okay, I can do this too. And I was just the drummer in the band. It didn't get much songwriting in, in, in the Go-Go's. Um, but you know what? When push came to a shove, I went out and I got a record deal. And, you know, I can do that. I, I You know, where it ends up is I only have so much control. But I still felt pretty good about what my contribution was and what I, you know, what I tried to do or what I did. So how did the band come back together? Jane Fonda got this band back together. Jane Fonda is the reason the band got back together. She contacted, was, uh, contacted all of us, Belinda initially, uh, about uh, getting together and wanting us to do a show at Universal for a green initiative that she wanted to get on the ballot. And of course we said yes because we're all environmentalists. And we also said, yes, because it's Jane Fonda, you know, a hero of all of ours. And um, so we met many times at her house in Santa Monica and uh, everybody just started talking. We started going out to dinner and, you know, it, it, it was a comfortable fit, you know, we're family, what could I say? And before you know it, we're touring. We started touring in 1990 and haven't stopped. Okay, in the interim before Jane Fonda tracks you down, how much contact do you have with the other four? And now since you've been back together, 
when you're not actually working, how much contact do you have with the other four? Um, we, you know what? We all, okay, Belinda just has moved from Bangkok. Now she's in Mexico City. Kathy's in Austin. Charlotte's in LA. Jane is in Hawaii. And I'm in San Francisco. So it's not like we get to see each other. We're not even in the same place. But we do talk quite a bit, believe it or not. Um, and because we have so much going on right now, so it's it's a necessity that we all speak uh, and get on the same page about decisions that need to be made. So it's it's like I said, it's pretty good now, Bob. I feel pretty comfortable with everybody and happy uh, the way things are moving forward with the band. Where you know we're we're talking about doing some things next year. I'm I'm pretty excited about things. The only thing I have to ask is I remember the final tour, oh, the retirement I tour. I told. I told, I said, don't put final tour. The go-go's are never over. Don't say final. That's ridiculous. Well, anyway, that happened, and that was a stupid move, I feel. I'm just going to say it was really dumb. Because you know what? We'll just tour until we fall down, and that's the truth. We walk away from each other for six months or a year, and then we come back together, and we're like, okay, let's do some shows. Oh, I miss you. Let's go on a vacation together. Let's do this. Let's do that. Come on. Was the decision, What was, why was the decision saying it was a final tour? Because people thought they were really out or you wanted to sell tickets? What was going no, on? No, I don't know. It wasn't a ticket thing. It was just a bullshit thing. I don't remember who it was. So, uh, whatever. They, you know, they don't want to work anymore. It doesn't matter. It all was resolved. And that was bullshit. And uh, it's embarrassing as far as I'm concerned. That final show, final tour crap that everybody does. I was not a part of that. Sorry, wasn't. Okay, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Where are you at on that? Excited, happy. It's about time. Didn't care initially, but now it's like when it actually happens. It's pretty cool. Icing, icing on the cake. Okay, so looking back, you were progenitors, all-girl group, and there haven't been a whole hell of a lot since. There was the Bangles after you. Now we're in more of a solo era. What can you tell us about being a woman in the music business as a performer? To what degree are you held back? To what de- what have you learned? I don't think you're held back so much anymore. In the early 80s, late 70s, you were because uh, you had something to prove. Um, although there aren't, there still is not an all-female band that has done what we've done. And I'm waiting desperately for that. We talk about this all the time. Why, where's the next go goes? What the hell's going on? Well, there may be some new bands coming around the bend that are going to happen. I hope, you know, um, um, like I love the Linda Lindas. Have you heard them, Bob? Yeah, they're very good. Aren't they great? I just, I've spent the weekend with them last, last week, uh, last uh, week in LA and I actually did, I played a song, they play a go-go, so they played tonight. And so I played drums on that song <clears throat> with them. And they, they fill me with joy. They are so wild and they're having such a great time. And they remind me of us, except younger. You know, they're so excited about everything. Oh, man. I hope they make it. What do you think? Because there's a huge buzz. Why do you think there's not a buzz? It hasn't happened already. I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. I have no idea. But it's about time. I'm glad those girls are doing what they're doing. And they're serious about it. And their parents, like, they're sending them to, you know, they're, they're all, they take guitar lessons. They take piano lessons, 
drum lessons, like their parents grew up watching us do what we do and then started taking them as little kids. So they know their history and they are excited about doing what they do. They love it. Like the drummer is, she's like 11 years old or 12. It's crazy. And the oldest girl is 16. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. It's about time. Okay. You know, we live in the Me Too era. To what degree do you have your own bad stories? To what degree do I have my own bad stories? Me Too moments where guys were doing things that were inappropriate. Uh, I've never had that problem. I think most guys are afraid of me and afraid of this band. When we're all together. The guys were always afraid of us. When we bring them back into the dressing room, they're like cowering in the corner. I mean, when the five of us are together, I guess it must be scary for guys. I don't know, but that's the way it's always worked out. I, I don't have any problem with guys at all. And getting, you know, getting pushed around. But we stand our own ground. That's why we were successful. That's why we've done what we've done. Okay, in the hopefully 30 years you have left, other than playing with the Go-Go's, you want to play until they bury you. What else do you want to accomplish? Oh, God, Bob. I don't know. You know, um, I'm really happy to be in this band and very grateful. And um, I hope we play a lot longer. And I think we have we have some things up our sleeve that perhaps will be around next year. Uh, we're working on stuff all the time behind the scenes. Um, all I hope for is that I stay healthy and happy and am allowed to do what I love to do, which is music, which will be writing, maybe some producing or, you know, and playing with the band. Um, I think I've, I've, my life thus far has been pretty fantastic. So I don't know what else is in store for me. All I know is that I'm going to keep my shit together and, um, you know, be open to whatever may come my way and uh, be grateful about it. Well, Gina, you're really a force of nature. I got to tell you, I've had a rough couple of days, been very busy, and I was pretty fried. But as soon as you hit the screen, lit right up, right into the groove. I mean, you could feel the energy. And I'm sure that is part of why you're so successful. I don't know, Bob. Everybody, everybody... Everybody tries the best way they know how. And I'm tired of hearing myself sound like such a goody two-shoes. I'm kind of an asshole sometimes. But you know what? Um, after being around for a while, I just, you know, when I see somebody, you know, becoming famous or, you know, I'm, I'm all so happy for them because it's a tough business. It really is, you know? And I would not want to be trying to get a deal this in this day and age. It is just so crazy. Um, and so I... You know, I watch younger artists or bands and I am, I am their fan. I am there in the background going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, do it. So, um, well, I, you know, I echo all that stuff, but being in Los Angeles for 45 years yeah, and hearing everybody's bullshit and yeah. knowing how hard it is to make it, talent is at most 50%. The other fifty oh, percent is work and drive. So anybody who made it, I have respect for, because no they kidding. really, they really had to go through the mill. It doesn't happen when people say, "Oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. I was lucky." That's just horseshit. 
If you got there, you had to be one-minded. You had to, yeah, you had to be a little lucky, but you had to make your own luck because this is a town where everybody comes to make it. And almost nobody does. Think of all the bands you played with at Club 88, et cetera. Who knows where those people are today? They never even got signed, never mind didn't have a hit record. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's uh, it's scary. I mean, I can't imagine being one of those pers- one of those people that that you know tried and tried and, and never really happened. Oh God, I don't know what I'd do. I I like I feel so lucky. And you're right about all that. It it does. You know, you don't just you don't just you're not just in the right place at the right time. There, you have to work to put yourself there. And you yeah. have to know how to negotiate the situation. Yes, you yeah, because you know what? Here's the other thing. You know, we're musicians. We're not uh, lawyers. We're not managers. That's not what what we chose to do. But yet, you have to have a little bit of that with in what you're doing. Or you're going to get screwed. You got to you got to learn the game. You got to learn how to play. And that takes that takes a while before you really know the rules and you know how to how to look out for yourself. Well, you talk about, you know, Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman, now Daryl Jones, you know, anchoring the band. And I think the most the most significant thing you were talking about is when you joined the band, you were the pile driver said, we got to rehearse. We got to do this. I mean, I can't lift the whole band, but I can light a fire under you. Well, I just, that was my way. It was the only way I knew how to do things, you know, um, I didn't have the magic formula. All I knew was that if we, I felt like if this band rehearsed more, something great was going to happen. I really believed that. And I think the girls, you know, adhered to that whole concept because they were, they were doing it and they were excited about it. And they felt that they believed in that idea. And, 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 and you can see, the band transforming, you know, from week to week, month to month, everybody was getting better at what they do. And so that is, is something that really, you know, propels you forward. It's like, okay, well, I see a difference now from a month ago, makes you want to continue what you're doing and know that you're doing the right stuff to make things better, to get your songs out there, to be a better musician, to be a better writer, all that goes into it, a better performer, better at handling record labels. You know, all that stuff. It's a big picture. Well put. And on that note, I think we're going to leave it. Gina, thanks so much for doing this. Bob, it's a pleasure. You're a sweetheart. I really enjoyed talking with you. Good luck editing it. And um, <laughs> we are not, oh, really we, we're not big editors. We pretty much let it rip because we want it to be honest. You condense it too much, you lose the essence. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think it'll turn out pretty good. Oh, I know it's good. <laughs> I can you tell. You got excited. You were like, you, you got some energy up. That's good. <laughs> well, you know. That's good. Yeah, you know, I'm guiding and I'm judging whether it's good. That's what I'm thinking about 24-7. As I say earlier, as soon as you Before hit the I mic, stand. I said, this is going to be no problem. All right, good. I'm glad you felt that way, babe. Um, and I appreciate uh, your guidance through this. Okay. Till next time. It's Bob Left Sense. Thank you. 
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.